Father, we do thank you for <clears throat> these moments. We thank you that that we can honor you and serve you and just be a testimony for your great glory and your wisdom and the salvation that we find in Jesus Christ. We thank you for our time this morning that we were together and ministering to one another. And again, we thank you that we can be here tonight and do the same, <clears throat> opening your word together and and looking into it to, to see how we ought to live for the sake of the gospel. And so, Lord, I pray that you would impress upon our hearts these truths, <clears throat> all that you have for us, that we might grow by it and be an honor, a blessing, a testimony that Jesus Christ would be glorified in it all and the lost would see and hear the gospel in us. And for that, we, we ask your blessing upon our time and that you would be glorified through it in Christ's name. Amen. Well, if you have your Bibles, take them and open them with me to Galatians chapter 2. <clears throat> Galatians chapter 2, we're returning to that tonight. And I want to read for us once again, verses 11 through 21, as we focus again our attention on the subject of avoiding the virus of hypocrisy for the sake of the gospel. Avoiding the virus of of hypocrisy for the sake of the gospel. The Apostle Paul says in chapter 2, beginning in verse 11, when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. Because prior to the coming of certain men from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they came, he began to withdraw and hold himself aloof, fearing the party of the circumcision. The rest of the Jews joined him in hypocrisy, with the result that even Barnabas was carried away by their hypocrisy. But when, they, when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas in the presence of all, if you being a Jew live like the Gentiles and not like the Jews, <clears throat> how is it that you compel the Gentiles to live like the Jews? We are Jews by nature not sinners from among the Gentiles. Nevertheless, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus, even we have believed in Christ Jesus, that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, since by the works of the law no flesh be justified. But if, while seeking to be justified in Christ, we ourselves have also been found sinners, is Christ then a minister of sin? May it never be. For if I rebuild what I have once destroyed, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. And it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and delivered himself up for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died needlessly. Of course, I want to address again the subject of hypocrisy. It's a very subtle thing to be a play actor when it comes to the gospel. Hypocrisy, obviously, is the idea of play acting. That was the terminology in the ancient days when 
when someone would be an actor in the plays, they were they were hypocrites. They were those who were not of themselves. They were playing the part of someone else. And it's a subtle thing to be a play actor when it comes to the gospel. Sometimes, unfortunately, we don't even realize that we are playing the part simply because we actually have allowed ourselves to become so unfamiliar with the gospel. Sometimes we're just out there, unbeknownst to us, playing the part that we are Christian and that we know the gospel when, in fact, we don't know the gospel at all as we ought. Or because of the way that evangelicalism, particularly here in the West, has so often watered down the gospel over the years so that there are many a professing Christian who lives in ways that confuse the gospel in the eyes of other people. And at other times, it's just willful gospel confusion that's being seen in the lives of some who profess to know Jesus Christ. It comes by way of gospel compromise, by selling it short, outright unwillingness to stand for the truth when circumstances require a stand for the truth. Well, when you come to Galatians chapter 2, the Apostle Paul calls that second reality what it actually is. He calls it willful hypocrisy. He calls out, in fact, the Apostle Peter for this very reality. Willful hypocrisy. And willful hypocrisy is very, very dangerous, as we saw last time we were here. Why? Because it disguises itself as truth by promoting that which is a lie as truth. It's a lie painted as if it's the actual truth. Even in a world that is so quick, to deny the absolute fact as truth. In a world that'll see the truth, hear the truth, know it's factual truth, and yet deny that as truth, even where people are so fluid in their own declarations about truth in the world in which we live, the reality is actually that all people are after truth, even those that disguise the truth. They're after truth, which is why even our fallen world makes declarations about what is right and wrong. Even if we disagree with their declarations, they are still making a declaration about that which is right or wrong in their minds. So those declarations are made according to statements that are born out of their own depravity, out of the fallen heart of man, And the very notion of a declaration is to say that the declaration is a statement of truth. If I say, even if I am wrong, that when you do something, you are wrong, then I have placed myself in the position of truth. I am saying, I am truth and you are not. So even if my statement is wrong, or if I say that I believe there is no truth by the very declaration I make, I am now saying there is truth, and I am it. So all men want to exist in the realm of truth, 
And that's what makes hypocrisy so dangerous. It claims to be truth when, in fact, it's a lie. And that's bad, but it gets even worse than that because those who foolishly proclaim non-realities as truth, like we heard this morning, like refusing to accept even human biology as the means of revealing someone's gender, they are living a lie even though it's moronically that they're living a lie. It's right before them that it is true even though they deny it. So the reality is that a hypocrite actually knows and actually understands the real truth, but willfully chooses to present something different. That's the greatest danger. Hypocrisy is willful. And the shocking reality is that it is a virus that Satan loves to bring into the church. He loves to infect the church of God with it. His desire is just that, to destroy what God has made, to trip it up, to ensure that it doesn't exist, even though God says that the gates of hell will not prevail against his church. But Satan doesn't care about that. He sows the tares among the wheat. He sows the tares among the wheat. And hypocrisy in the church is what concerns the Apostle Paul here in Galatians chapter 2. Why? Because if the believers in Galatia begin to follow the hypocrite, the gospel that they present with their very lives, in other words, the gospel that they're going to be living out will not save. It is another gospel, as Paul says in chapter 1, that ought to be set aside. It is not a gospel at all. It is an unsaving gospel, and it distorts the true gospel, the gospel of Christ. It will not save. In other words, a gospel that is not the one which God has given to us in every detail, in every aspect, is a gospel that will not save. Remember what Paul's words were back in verse 8 of chapter 1? Even though we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to that which we have preached to you, let them be accursed. Paul says, listen, if I come to you or even a celestial being comes to you and stands right in front of you and preaches something different than what I've already told you, they are anathema. They are accursed. Paul says, I should be thrown out of the church if I do that. So why would he say that? Why would he say that? Because the gospel is one that delivers a person out of this present age. It delivers a person from sin. It converts a person from death to life. It takes them and transfers them from darkness to light. So to follow or perpetuate a gospel that is not the gospel according to the grace of Christ alone is to personally distort the gospel of Christ. What he says in verse chapter 1, verse 7. 
right? It's not another, only there are some who are disturbing you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. So to perpetuate a gospel that is not the gospel of God is to distort the gospel of Christ. And Paul says, if that is true of anyone, heavenly or earthly, then they are to be accursed. It's almost as if the Apostle Paul is saying that there is nothing worse. It's almost as if he's saying, listen, there are a lot of things that are bad in this world. There are a lot of things that attack. There are a lot of things that can destroy your life. But there is nothing worse than having the wrong gospel. There's nothing worse than that. I was thinking about that. If you have the cure for the greatest killer of all time, if you were the person that were holding the cure for sin, if it was some kind of therapeutic that could be passed out to people in order to cure sin, and you had it, and you willfully dilute it so that it no longer cures, there's nothing worse than that. You have the cure and you diluted it. That's the very heart of Satan himself. To adjust what God has said so that it means something different. So that it is not the gospel that saves, is to follow the heart of the king of deceivers who has been a liar from the beginning. So the question needs to be asked, what is at stake when the gospel is adjusted? What is at stake when the gospel is adjusted? Well, we could list a whole whole host of dangers that are at stake when the gospel is adjusted, but the one that Paul is addressing here is the doctrine of justification. The doctrine of justification. Why? Because the doctrine of justification is at the heart of the gospel. This is the, the centerpiece, if you will. The doctrine of justification is simply what the Bible teaches about how a sinner is made righteous before God. How a sinner is made righteous before God. That's the basic doctrine. And it's the basic doctrine that is on the mind of the Apostle Paul in this entire letter of Galatians. This is on his mind from chapter 1 all the way through which is why he begins his letter by establishing his own authority, by establishing the fact that he is an apostle and the validity of his gospel that he is teaching. He he established that and he defends it. We have to remember this is New Testament times when this letter was written. This is the first letter of Paul's 13 letters that that he writes that we have in the Scriptures. This is the the first one that the Holy Spirit inspires the Apostle Paul to write to the churches in the first century. Because why? Well, if justification is confused, if justification is, is off to a bad start at the very beginning, then the church is in grave danger. The church is filled with a bunch of people who think they're saved, but they're following after a different gospel. And so Paul begins to hone in on this doctrine here in verses 15 through 21 of chapter 2. Now last time we were here in the book of Galatians, we learned that we can inoculate ourselves as Christians 
We can inoculate ourselves against hypocrisy when we ask ourselves a few basic questions. And the first question was this, just by way of review. What are we relying on or trusting in for our right standing before God? What are we relying on or trusting in for our right standing before God? Notice what the Apostle Paul says in verses 15 and 16. He's telling the Galatians this about his confrontation with the Apostle Peter when he came. Of course, the Galatian believers were there in the church. They probably would have heard what Paul had said, but he's reminding them of this. And he says, I I said to Peter, we're Jews by nature and not sinners from among the Gentiles. Nevertheless, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus, even we believed in Christ Jesus that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, since by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. Now, there's one main drive that the Apostle Paul has when he speaks those words. And it is the question that we asked, on what basis, Peter, on what basis are you trusting in for your justification? On what basis is any person declared righteous before God? Right In Antioch, Paul says, when Peter came to me in Antioch, in Antioch, Peter began living in a behavioral gospel compromise. He began living contrary to how the gospel taught. He was staying as Paul says, aloof from the Gentiles. These were his brothers and sisters in Christ, these Gentile believers in Christ. Peter had known what God had said to him in Acts chapter 10 when he went to Cornelius' house and the the vision of the, the cloth comes down with all these animals on it and he says he's to eat whatever, and he says, I'm not going to defile myself. And God says, what I make clean is clean. And it was all a vision about Peter going and sharing the gospel with Cornelius in his house, who was a Gentile. Peter knew this. And yet here is Peter staying aloof from them simply because other Jews, who apparently had a skewed view of justification, a wrong view of justification. They were faith plus law-keeping, faith plus righteous activity-keeping. They had come from Jerusalem, and it says from James. In other words, I believe supposedly from James, as if they were close with James. James wouldn't have believed this. James would have certainly believed in faith alone. But these men came to see Peter and the other Jews, and so Peter begins to act differently than he did before. And in doing so, he's sending a clear picture, a clear message about what really matters in order to be justified. Peter's saying, you need to believe, but you also need to keep the works of the law. That's what his actions were saying. He was saying, listen, it's faith plus works rather than faith in Christ alone. That's the implications that we see here in verse 15. We are Jews by nature and not sinners from among the Gentiles, Paul says to Peter. 
We're Jews. We were given the law and we know the law. We're not from the Gentiles. Peter, you know this. So don't presume that because of who you are as a Jew, you have some place before God by keeping the law. Don't presume that. That's religious presumption. That's a contradiction, Paul says, of what we believe. That's not living the gospel. You're contradicting the gospel. It's religious presumption. And of course, as we learned last time, Peter's not the only one who has that problem from time to time. It's a product of humanity in general, isn't it? Religious presumption? To presume upon the grace of God? That happens in every part of the world. Certainly, Ed Maria down in Honduras and all of us have known people who have presumed upon the grace of God without faith. Why? Because that's one of the ways that sinful people are able to quiet their screaming conscience, to push down their, the conscience that so readily is there by God to show them how guilty they are. That's how they cope with the reality of sin and its eternal penalty. They presume upon God. You hear that from relatives. Oh, I'm good enough. I'm okay. God will, you know, I've been a good person. That's a presumption. Presumption is just a form of self-righteousness. Self-righteousness either says that I'm either inherently acceptable because of my heritage, I'm a Jew like Paul is bringing up here, or I'm valuable because of what I've done. I'm a good person. I, I haven't murdered anybody. I haven't done any of the heinous crimes. So that's the first question that we need to ask upon what are we relying for our justification? And maybe that's a good question that we could ask in our own evangelism. When we're talking to someone, I say, I'm a good person. So you're relying on your goodness for your justification. Maybe that's a question we ought to ask upon what are you relying for your justification? They'll probably look at you cross-eyed because no one talks about justification in those kind of ways. And then you can begin to explain that. But there's a second question that we need to ask, and it's this. Am I convinced? Am I convinced that the only reliable basis for justification is through Christ alone? You see, this is the inoculation for us to avoid hypocrisy in our own lives and to live the gospel in a pure way. Am I convinced that the only reliable basis for justification is in Christ alone? Notice what Paul says to Peter, verse 16, Nevertheless, knowing that a man is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus. What's Paul saying? He's saying that not even actual justification matters if you're not convinced that it is only reliable. It's the only reliable source for your justification. If you're not convinced, it doesn't matter. Justification is by faith alone, Peter. You and I both know that. We grew up under the law. We know that no one is justified by keeping the law. We know that. We tried that. Paul could even say what he says in Philippians, I was the best Pharisee around. No one knew the law like I did, Peter. You knew the law. We know that no one's justified by the law. 
Simply knowing that justification is by Christ alone, however, does not, does not do you any good if you're not convinced of it. An intellectual knowledge that Christ justifies does no good if you're not convinced that that's what your justification is based upon. So we cannot simply say that justification is in Christ alone and then live as if it isn't. That's what Paul's saying. Listen, Peter, you can't just say that you believe in justification in Christ. You have to live it. To not live it is hypocrisy. That's adjusting the gospel. That's to confuse others with a false gospel, lead them away from the gospel that saves. So are we convinced that it's the on, that it's only through the blood of Jesus Christ by which anyone is justified? And then we asked a third question. The third question was this: Are we then therefore entrusting ourselves to Jesus for our justification? Are we therefore then entrusting ourselves to Jesus for our justification? The Apostle Paul says, but through faith in Jesus Christ, even we, verse 16, have believed in Christ Jesus, that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, since by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. See, if justification is through Christ, and we are convinced of that, then the question is, are we actually believing it? Are we actually believing it? Paul says to the Galatians, I told Peter, listen, you and I, you and I were Jews. And as Jews, we have believed it. We have believed that justification is by faith alone. We have entrusted ourselves to Jesus Christ for our justification. Why? Because we know that no one is justified by works. No one knows it better than you and I, Peter. So why are you being a hypocrite? Why are you staying aloof? Why are you saying, by how you're living, not in your words, but how you're living, why are you saying that justification is by works? That's hypocrisy. You see, Peter's hypocrisy called for a public rebuke. Paul said, I said to him in front of everybody else, when I saw, verse 14, that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas in the presence of all. Why? Because Peter was a leader in the church. Peter was a leader from Jerusalem. He had come down to see the believers in Galatia. He was known as one of reputation in the church, and his hypocrisy was more damaging than anyone else's hypocrisy could be. He was one who could lead many, many astray, and therefore his rebuke needed to be a public rebuke. He called for a public clarification of what saving faith acknowledges. But I want us to notice tonight that Paul doesn't stop there. He doesn't stop there. Because the doctrine of justification by faith alone opens the door to a potential problem in the minds of many within evangelicalism. You say, what's the problem? 
Well, the problem is this, that if a person is declared righteous by the grace of God through faith in Christ alone, then why bother to live out the gospel? You say, what do you mean? Well, I mean this. What incentive does the Christian have to live for God right now if we're already justified? That's simply just asking the question from the other side of it, from someone who believes in faith plus works. If if it's faith alone that justifies, then why do we live out any kind of righteousness now? If justification has nothing to do with us and everything to do with God, if it's God's judicial declaration about the ones He saves based upon faith in Christ, then why strive at righteous living after believing the gospel? Well, Paul anticipates that question, and he makes that very question part of his argument for living out the gospel. He makes the very question itself part of his answer for why we ought to live the gospel. Notice what he says in verses 17 and 18. But if, while seeking to be justified in Christ, we ourselves have also been found sinners, is Christ then a minister of sin? May it never be. For if I rebuild what I have once destroyed, I prove myself to be a transgressor. Paul asks a fair question. And that question all hinges on the word sinners or transgressors. And it all hinges on the view that Jews had of non-Jews. Right? In other words, it all hinges on the view that someone who says faith plus works is what justifies the view they have of people who have faith in Christ alone for justification. So in the minds of a Jew, the Gentile was a sinner, but not because they were immoral people. Not because of that. No, for a Jew, they they believed they were sinners. Why? Because they didn't follow the law of Moses. They didn't keep the law. And so when Peter begins to compromise, he does so because he knew how those who had come to him would look at him. He knew how they thought. He knew how they would have looked at him. And so what does he do? Because they were going to define him as being a sinner, as not being justified because he lived like the Gentiles, right? The Gentiles they saw as those who don't keep the law. And if Peter's living like the Gentiles, then he's somebody who doesn't keep law. He's just a sinner. He's not justified at all. Why? Because in his personal living, he's living outside the law now. And so Paul uses this argument with the Galatians about Peter, and he says, listen, if we change, if we change how we live in front of others and go back to our old ways, if we change from 
faith in Christ alone to go back to faith plus works for our justification, then we are just making Jesus a servant of sin. We have now imputed Jesus with sin. Why? Because we've added to justification. Because justification in Christ is something that Christ preached. Jesus himself said, believe upon me and you will be saved. Now Jesus has led us in a direction that is not the direction for justification. In fact, Jesus himself, by implication, was preaching a non-gospel. That's the idea that Paul's bringing up here in verse 17. If we live as if justification is by faith plus works, then we are imputing sin to Jesus Christ, the very one we claim to be our Savior and to save us from sin. In other words, adding to justification is tantamount to Christ leading us to sin. In other words, listen, Galatian brothers and sisters, I told Peter, listen, we gave up living by the law for justification. And we began to live in a way that showed that the law had no effect on justification. Had no effect. And if we go back, not only is that hypocrisy, but that makes Christ an agent of sin. We call Christ a liar, and his gospel is an actual agent of sin if justification is justification by faith plus work. So in the mind of the Jews that came to see Peter, if he lived like the Gentiles by means of justification in Christ alone, then being justified by faith causes people to sin in the name of Christ. That's how their mind was thinking. So what's the best answer to that kind of accusation? What's the best answer to someone that says, you're just living in sin because you don't obey the law? Simply this. The answer is simply this. Being justified in Christ doesn't remove sinful possibility in the life of believers. Being justified by faith alone does not remove the possibility of sin in the life of a Christian. That would be nice if it did. That would be nice if once we believed upon Jesus Christ for faith by faith in Christ, we sinned no more this side of heaven. There was no sinful activity in us at all. That would be nice. But sadly, sadly, the reality is that you and I, as Christians, are at times not very good advertisements for being a Christian. We're just not. We sin. We sin. But we sin not because we're justified. We sin in spite of our justification. In spite of it. In other words, a Christian is not someone who is unable to sin, no, a Christian is someone who, because of faith in Christ, God does not impute the eternal guilt of their sin to them. That's a Christian. 
that God does not impute the eternal guilt of their sin to them. That does not imply, however, that very statement does not imply that Christ is a minister of sin. That because faith in Christ alone justifies us and we still sin, that Christ somehow is a minister of sin. In fact, Paul uses, you notice, the strongest negative in the Greek language to show that in verse 17. May it never be. May it never be. That's the strongest negative you can write in the original language. May genita. It's, it's the strongest way to say no, 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 no. Absolutely not. There's no way you can even go down that road. You cannot think that at all. No, 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 no. Christ is not that. In other words, Christ can't be blamed for our sin. Our sin is our fault. In fact, what promotes sin is not justification by faith in Christ alone. What promotes sin actually is justification by faith plus keeping of the law. That promotes sin. You say, really? Yes. Look at verse 18. For if I rebuild what I have once destroyed, Paul's talking about the law. If I do away, if I rebuild what I've done away with, I prove myself to be a sinner. You see, Paul is saying that's where sin is most prevalent. Listen, the purpose of the law is to show how sinful we are. That's the purpose of the law. And if, Paul says, and if I go back to the law for my justification the very thing that just simply points out my sin, there is no true justification because all I get is the reality that I'm a lawbreaker and I'm unable to justify myself. That's all I get. There can't be justification through law-keeping because all the law does is uncover my sin. All it does is show me to be a transgressor. It proves, I prove myself to be a transgressor. All the law does is prove that I'm not justified and that I can't be justified by keeping it. That's what the law does. Paul said it's foolishness to rebuild that. It's foolishness to go back to that. It's foolishness to even think that way because all it does is show just how sinful I really am. So Paul says, I, I publicly rebuked Peter. Why? Because that's what he was doing by his hypocrisy. That's what he was doing. He was leading the Gentiles actually away from true justification and away from what can really truly save. Notice verse 19, for through the law I died to the law. For through the law, I died to the law. In other words, the law cannot justify. The law cannot justify. So what does, what does it mean to die to the law? You notice how it's phrased there in verse 19. You notice the verse says it's not the law dying. It's not the law dying. Paul says, I died to the law. 
He didn't say the law died when I got justified. He didn't say the law went away when God justified me by faith in Christ. He says, no, I died to the law. That's a massive statement for a prior Pharisee to make. I died to the law. Paul was the quintessential law keeper. And here he is saying, I died to the law. In Paul's unsaved life, before Christ, Paul lived for the law. That's what he lived to do. And now he says, I'm dead to it. I've died to the law. That means he's no longer under its power. The law no longer rules him. Not there anymore. What's he saying? He's saying that the only purpose for the law is to kill. That's the purpose for the law. All it does is kill. The law cannot make alive. The law cannot justify. The law only condemns. The law cannot promise life. All the law can do is promise death. It only takes one slip. It only takes one mistake. It only takes one little adjustment, one little miss. The penalty of the law is enacted. You fail at one point, you're guilty of the whole law. Jesus said. So if you're not perfect, then you die. So by the law, we die. Paul's saying, by the law, we die. But, listen, once the law kills, once the law kills, there's nothing else the law can do. Once the law enacts its penalty and exacts its judgment and its justice, there's nothing else it can do. So Paul says, all I could do was die. It executed me. No one's executed twice. They're only executed once. Paul says, the law already put me to death. How? Because I couldn't keep it. I couldn't do as it required, so it already enacted its justice. It killed me, so all I could do was die. And it was the law that put Christ to death in my place. He died on the cross. Well, here's what Paul's saying. He's saying, listen, if we're going to avoid the virus of hypocrisy for the sake of the gospel, then we must remember, we must remember just who it is justification comes through. We must be convinced of that, and we must entrust ourselves to that. Because to do otherwise, to add anything to it, is actually to lead people into sin, not lead them into life, because that's what the law does. It just kills Christ died under the law. And Christ says then lastly, Paul says lastly, we must remember then lastly that we are united with Christ. You want to protect yourself against the virus of hypocrisy? Remember you are united with Christ. Verse 20, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live. It's Christ lives in me. And The life that I live now in this flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and delivered himself up for me. Paul says, when Christ died, I died also. I was crucified with Christ. 
I died to the law in the death of Christ. The law enacted its punishment. It killed me. The punishment was upon me. All was waiting was for the day of eternal execution by God. And God, by His grace, sent one who was perfect, who under the law was it was unjust for him to die, and yet he was crucified on our behalf. So Paul says, when Christ died, I died. I died through the law. I died to the law so that I might live to God. The law no longer has effect. And that's why Paul says, I'm alive in Christ. No longer I who live. I live in Christ. Christ lives in me. In the life I live, I live by faith in Him. I entrust myself to Him. It's interesting, you know, when you look through the Scriptures, the New Testament, it tells us that there were several things nailed to the cross, the murder of Jesus. There were several things nailed to the cross. Obviously, most obviously, Jesus was nailed to the cross. He was physically attached to the cross. You go into the Gospels, the Gospels tell us that there was a sign attached to the cross, a sign that says, this is Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. That was attached to the cross. Both of those are physical realities. Jesus physically there, the sign physically there. But then you read passages like Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 and 14, which say this, When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, He made you alive together with Him, having forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us, and He has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. What was nailed to the cross? The certificate of debt which consisted of decrees against us. Based on what? The law of God? That too was nailed to the cross. Jesus was nailed to the cross. The sign was nailed to the cross. A decree of God's Decree against us, the hostility that God had against us was nailed there. It was attributed to Christ, nailed to the cross with Him. There was a fourth thing nailed to the cross. Here's how Paul said it. I have been crucified with Christ. We. We, who believe in Jesus Christ, each and every believer in Jesus Christ was nailed to the cross in Jesus Christ. We have been unified with Jesus Christ, not just in His life. We have been unified with Christ in His death. I have been crucified with Christ. You could write your name right there if you believed in Jesus Christ. I've been crucified with Christ. I was nailed to the cross with Christ. And therefore, 
We no longer live to be justified. We no longer live in order to gain some kind of justification. We live because we are justified in Christ alone. That's what Paul's saying. I live now. The life I live is not in order to gain justification. The life I live, I live by faith in God who loved me and delivered himself up for me. I live the way I live because I'm justified. I don't attach righteous deeds to my justification. That only leads me back to death. The only way to become unified with Jesus Christ is by faith alone. That's the only way. It's exactly what Paul said to Peter. Listen, Peter, you're leading people not towards justification. You're leading people away from justification by how you're living now. Even we, he said in verse 16, have believed in Jesus Christ that we may be justified by faith in Christ. Once a person entrusts themselves to Christ, they are in Christ. The mystery of God's transactional means by which he takes us and transfers us from darkness to light places us out of the kingdom of darkness into the domain of his dear son. All of that transaction takes place by the miraculous reality of God's justification. The declaration of God upon us in Jesus Christ because of who Christ is. And that union with Christ then becomes our spiritual reality. It's vital, it's real, And therefore, that reality, that union with Christ ought to reflect itself in how we live now. The life which we now live in the flesh, we live by faith in the Son of God. We don't live by doing spiritual activities and hope to gain some kind of merit with God. So Paul says, he ends chapter 2, By saying this, I don't nullify the grace of God. Oh, sure, that's what I'm accused of. I'm accused of justification and faith alone, and that nullifies the grace of God. That just takes grace away. No, 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 no. I don't nullify the grace of God. I don't nullify it at all. Why? Because if righteousness comes through the law, then somebody please tell me why Christ died. What in the world would God need to kill his own son for if righteousness comes by my own efforts? If righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died needlessly. Christ died needlessly. This is the whole point of Paul's defense. This is the whole point of calling out Peter. He wants to ensure that the Galatians aren't led astray. He wants to ensure, as he said in verse 5, that the truth of the gospel might remain with them. They follow what what they're seeing. If Paul didn't call it out, then the virus of hypocrisy was about to run rampant in the church in Galatia. It would have run rampant in the hearts of the people who were there. So if we're going to avoid the virus of hypocrisy for the sake of the gospel, we better live by faith alone. Faith alone. 
Union with Christ is the only necessity. Union with Christ. The sad part is, and we'll get into this next time, the sad part is that it had already infected the church. Chapter 3, verse 1, You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? before whose eyes Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Peter's asking the same question, really, that he just ended with in verse 21. You think Christ helps you, and in fact, the way you're going to go about living in hypocrisy, you're nullifying Christ. Christ died needlessly. Christ died needlessly. So we are to live by faith, faith alone, in Christ alone, for the glory of God alone, because the scriptures alone teach us that. That's the gospel. That's justification. Well, let's pray. Father, thank you again for tonight. Thank you for your word. Thank you for how it just shapes us, and molds us, and causes us to think rightly about what you have said. Thank you for bringing us together and that we can learn together and that we can sharpen one another together as we think on these things. Thank you for having Ed and Maria with us. Thank you that they're going to be in the area for quite some time as they await the approval of Maria being a permanent resident. Lord, we pray that that would go quickly for them. Help us to minister to them, to care for them, to love on them, to uh, enjoy their fellowship and enjoy their ministry to us as well as from us. All for your glory, may we live the gospel for the sake of of your name. For it's our Savior who we love and want to serve. In his name we pray. Amen.